We've been in a series uh, entitled Wonderfully Made, God's Design for Men, Women, and Relationships. And today we're going to talk about God's design for sex. Um, I, I want to preface this uh, by saying that uh, this has been a rough week. Um, I have really battled with this because I wanted to do the topic justice. I wanted to make sure that I, that I gave it the... the honor that it deserved, and at the same time that as I spoke to each of you, uh, that it would be God's words speaking to you, that you would see in all of this his, his huge heart for each one of you, and that in the design of sex. Um, how many of you today thought you were going to show up and hear a topic of sex from the pulpit? Yeah, yeah. Well, one did, yeah. I told you. All right. Honestly, does it feel like, like sex isn't really something you feel like should be talked about in church? I would absolutely agree with you. And, you know, the good question would be, why? Why is that? Why do we feel so awkward about that in this context? Around us, the world is obsessed with sex. Advertising is saturated with sex. You can hardly see a movie without sex in it, and it becomes more detailed and more risque as the years go on. And what about prostitution, Um, human trafficking, child pornography? Uh, We see the devastation that that brings all over the place. And it's not just in the news. It's in our city. It's in our neighborhoods. The brokenness related to sex is not just out there. We see it in our own relationships. So what's with the whole sex thing anyway? This can't be how God meant it to be, can it? A group of young people indicated their frustration with God, indicating that they wondered if he was some kind of sick jokester, saying no sex until marriage, while puberty and sex drives develop young, but marriage seems to be pushed back later and later. And what about all the other forms of sexual interaction, like living together with a boyfriend or girlfriend? What about other forms of sexual gratification alone, or with someone else. Even sex within marriage isn't a cure-all. Take a look at divorce rates and adultery. How many people, even those committed to their marriages, are satisfied? And what about same-sex relationships? What does God say about all of that? Our culture is right in the thick of redefining the boundaries of many long-accepted understandings of relationships. So these are very relevant questions. The culture, through the media, tries to tell us that the answers to our search for satisfaction are within ourselves, that we should throw off the sexual limitations of the past, that we should search our hearts and be true to ourselves, what we find there, our sexual identity, regardless of what we find. So what do we do as a church? How do we respond to those changes in the culture? Has our culture simply become more enlightened? or matured beyond the boundaries of what was acceptable in the past? Or does God have something definitive and enduring to say on this topic, and and what are his reasons for saying so? If you have a Bible with you, turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19, it's the first book of the New Testament. It's going to be on the screen behind me as well if the Bible is pretty new to you, but I would strongly encourage you to bring a Bible on Sundays. Look up the passages that we refer to during the sermon. It helps you to become familiar with God's Word. 
as you turn there again and again, you become familiar with where those passages are in the Bible. And so then when you have an opportunity to share with somebody else, you can more readily find the things that you need rather than scrambling and saying, well, I know there's this verse that says something like this. It's so much more effective if you could look it up yourself. So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 19. And, uh, and it says this, Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan, and large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And the Pharisees came up to him, and they tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? You see, there was a, a, a mindset, a thinking there, that the, uh, there were two, actually, there were two major groups of of sort of followers of rabbis, and one of the major teaching was that you could divorce your wife for any reason. They burnt the bagels, you could divorce her, all right? That kind of thing. Um, it, was, it was literally that easy to, to dissolve the relationship. And Jesus answered this, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female, and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother, and shall hold fast to his wife. The old King James says, cleave to his wife. It has that thought of clinging desperately. That's the idea. Shall hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. It's an interesting phrase. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Sometimes you hear that as part of wedding vows. They said to him, well, why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? It was an interesting phrase. Moses never commanded that. So they have already twisted the words. He said to them, because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. The disciples said to him, if, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it's better not to marry. But he said to them, not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth. And there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men. And there are eunuchs who have, been ma- who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom. Let the one who's able to receive this, receive it. All right, interesting passage. Uh, When people ask me why I believe God's word, I tell them, well, because Jesus did. And when they ask me if I take Genesis literally, I say, well, yes, because Jesus did. Uh, If you've got an issue with that, you don't have an issue with me, you have an issue with Jesus. So you need to consider that. So the Pharisees in this situation asked Jesus about divorce, and he responds by saying, if you want to understand divorce, you've got to understand marriage. And in order to understand marriage, you have to go right back to the creation. There's a sense in which he's kind of prodding them a little bit. He's, he's being a little bit sarcastic because the Pharisees prided themselves on their study of the scriptures, and he's in essence saying, did you get as far as Genesis chapter 1? in your studies, right? It's the very first chapter of the Bible. Uh, Did you miss that part? So we're going to turn there too. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, very very first verse in the Bible. This is the passage that Jesus referred to, so we're going to take a look at that, and that's going to be our main uh, passage uh, as we consider this topic. 
I'm not going to read all of this because there's a lot of verses there, and I don't necessarily need to do that uh, for the sake of our topic. I want to look at the first verse, which says this, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. As we go through the rest of the passage, we get a description of the creation account. It says things like this, and God said, let there be light, and there was light. God called the light day and the darkness night. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters. Let it separate the waters from the waters. God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let dry land appear. God saw that it was good. God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed and fruit trees bearing fruit. And the earth brought forth vegetation. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens. Let them be for signs and seasons. And God made two great lights, one to rule the day, the sun, and one to rule the night, the moon. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves, and God blessed them. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let us make man. Now, just before we get into that, I just want to touch on some of this. The very first four words of the Bible give us the framework in which to understand everything. It says this, in the beginning, God. It's a little humbling to note that the start of the story, the big story, the story of everything does not begin with us. It begins with God. He is before everything else. He controls, he designs, he plans, and he builds. The story is his story. He is center stage. The spotlight is on him. He has all the important lines. He will not forsake his position of authority, nor hand control over to another. Our understanding of everything has to begin with this. He is the center, not us. Your life is not about you. It's about him. I've been uh, reading a book in preparation for this series, and it's uh, entitled Sex in a Broken World by Paul Tripp. It has been an excellent book. I would recommend that each of you, if you are really serious about your life being one that honors God, get that book, read through it. Uh, It was remarkable uh, for me. Paul Tripp in his book, Sex in a Broken World, says, when you put yourself and your particular definition of pleasure at the center of your world, not only are you rejecting God's wisdom and rebelling against his authority, but you're also questing for his position. But God in his zeal for his own glory and for your good won't exit his position and give it to you. You just can't properly understand and participate in the world of sex without this perspective. Now, before we go any further, I don't want you to get the idea that this is going to be a sermon about what you can't do, what is not allowed. Uh, The church has, at times, inadvertently portrayed God as a bit of a prude and a spoil sport. And the enemy has taken full advantage of that. He has made sure that's highlighted in everybody's minds so that He gets the message across, God doesn't want you to have any fun or pleasure. Do it God's way, and you're going to be lonely and unfulfilled. So now I'd like to read 
Genesis 1.26 and see if that's actually true. In verse 26, it says, And then God said, Let us make man in our image. And that means mankind, not just the male portion. Uh, Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Verse 27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So, reading these verses, here's what we learn. Sex is God's good idea. Now, I want you to notice a few things. It doesn't say the word sex anywhere in there, does it? But first off, nowhere else did God create anything else in his image. Only mankind gets that distinction. Mankind is the image bearer of God. That is what we are. Mankind is capable of things that the animal world is not capable of. By design, it's intentional. We are not just a higher animal. We are unique in all of creation. In the description, God specifically notes that he made mankind male and female. And to top it off, He blesses them and instructs them to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. How exactly do couples be fruitful and multiply? By having sex with each other. That's how it happens. If you weren't aware of that and I've just shocked you, I'm really (laughs) sorry. Your health teachers have failed you. Anyway, sex was not something that Adam and Eve stumbled upon by accident while in the bushes together, and God is somehow wringing his hands and saying, oh no, they figured it out. It was God's idea all along. This first couple was literally made for each other. And God gave them to each other, and he said, enjoy, be fruitful. You have my blessing. Is that weird? Does that sound strange to you somehow? Because if it does, then perhaps your concept of what sex is all about has been off base. We need to get it back on base. At the end of each day of creation, we hear the refrain, and God saw that it was good. I read that multiple times. But after this day, it reads, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. That's the only place where it adds that little prefix in there, or that little uh, descriptor. Very good. It was God's plan all along that a man and a woman would bind themselves to one another in the bond of marriage, that it would be a permanent bond, and that within that bond they would be united, not just physically and emotionally, but especially spiritually, through the one flesh union of sex. And as a consequence, they would produce children who would be raised, loved, provided for, and protected within that marriage relationship. It was a wise and beautiful and loving design. It was very good. When I talk to students at my school, most, if not all, consider it rather unrealistic to commit your whole life to one person. Why? Well, from the example they've seen, sex and relationship is about you and about getting something. When you're no longer getting what you need, when it becomes mundane, when the other person doesn't thrill or satisfy you anymore, well, then it's time to move on. They're seeing it in their parents. 
I went through my phone list for parent contacts. I would say in the neighborhood of 40% of my students are living with both parents together married. 40%. And yet when I introduce my math course on the first day of school and I tell them a little bit about myself, when I mention that my wife and I will be married 29 years this summer, do you know what they do? They applaud. They applaud and mean something to them. I think deep down in our hearts, we want to believe that it can work, that love can last for a lifetime. Why is that? The Bible teaches that we are designed for worship. But when sin entered the picture, everything that was very good, as God declared it, became distorted. Rather than glorying in the ultimate, we glory in the immediate. Rather than making God the focus of our worship, we make ourselves or things around us the focus of our worship. The concept of creation of something always carries with it the concept of design and ownership. Creator and owner are always intertwined. As a follower of Jesus, there are two important questions you must ask about everything in your life, and that includes sex. What was the creator's purpose for this thing when it was made? And how do I demonstrate his ownership over this thing as I use it in my daily life? We are the creatures, not the creator. We were designed to be live-in supervisors, resident managers of the garden, and ultimately of all that God had made. That was Adam and Eve's task. We don't own what we've been given. God does. We don't get to make the rules. God does. We don't get a vote when it comes to the purpose for our lives and for everything else. We are here to recognize God's ownership by fulfilling his purpose for everything. I'm a huge fan of Lord of the Rings. Anyone? Do I hear an amen? Yeah. There is uh, a part of the Lord of the Rings, a third part, Return of the King. Interesting title, isn't it? Return of the King, where Aragorn, who is the rightful king, comes back to Gondor, but there is a steward there. The steward of Gondor is in charge there, and he refuses to acknowledge the king. We are stewards. That's what we are. We have been left in charge until the king comes back. The question is, are we conscious of that responsibility? Are we conscious of our position? Do we recognize the true king? and honor him. Do we see our bodies and our sexuality as belonging to God? Believe me, I I know that it is counterintuitive to be thinking this way when thinking about physical intimacy. That's not the time when I really feel like we should get together and pray. And yet, many of our problems with sex exist because we've reduced our relationship with sex and intimacy to a bunch of rules. We often think about it as, Well, you can't do this, and you can't do that. And we think about God in that context, too. If you're not a follower of Jesus, then perhaps those concepts are simply old-fashioned and prudish to you. Maybe they don't even enter your mind. Maybe it's simply, I like this, I want this, so does the other person, it's consensual, so it's okay. However, it's clear just by looking at the world around us, by picking up a newspaper, by watching the news on TV, that it's not that simple, and it's not working. 
If you are a follower of Jesus, do you acknowledge God's ownership over your life? Do you honestly believe that God, not you, has the authority to determine how your sexuality plays out in your life? If you are single and dating, is it about how close can I come to that boundary line without crossing it? If so, then I'm going to warn you as a human being who has been there, the problem with that thinking is that you will move the line. Sex was never designed to be casual. It was designed to strengthen a bond of marriage and to be the route through which children would be produced. Was it solely about producing children? I don't believe so. Do you honestly think that Adam and Eve traipsed around the garden buck naked all that time and didn't have sex until they were kicked out of the garden? That's the first time that we see a reference to it. That doesn't mean it didn't happen before that. I sincerely doubt that it waited that long. How do we know that Adam found Eve attractive? Well, the first words out of his mouth when he saw her were, whoa, man, and that's how she got her name. Okay, I'm kidding. But seriously, sex is attractive. It is mysterious and delightful and amazing and like nothing else in the world. And that was God's plan, God's idea, God's design for mankind. But it had an intent. It had a plan. And when we break that plan, when we go contrary to that plan, it's going to cause damage. It's never going to be what it was intended to be. Does it surprise you that it was God's plan, God's design? Does it sound scandalous? Does it seem weird to think that it would be perfectly appropriate to glorify God for the intimate physical relationship you enjoy with a spouse? God is good. God is loving. He has intended good and loving and amazing things for us, the people he loves, the people he designed to bear his image. Let me demonstrate his heart. If we were to make a movie of the creation account, and if we started with Genesis chapter 1, you might have a big, wide-angle perspective. Um, my wife and I had the opportunity to see a play of uh, The Magician's Nephew, which is the first book in the Narnia Chronicles. It's the one that comes before the lion, the witch, and the wardrobe. And in that, the lion, Aslan, sings and the world is created. It's an amazing picture. If we were to look at the creation account, I can imagine seeing the globe from a distance and seeing the green start to appear as he says, let vegetation uh, sprout forth and fruit trees and so on, and to see the light come into play and stuff like that. But then we get to Genesis chapter 2, and here we get this beautiful zoom in on one facet of the creation, the creation of man and woman. It's beautiful because God's heart is so clearly seen. Remember that God spoke and created light and life and animals and days and seasons and trees and everything else. But in verse 7 of chapter 2, let me read it to you here. It says this, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Do you see that? God could do all the rest of the creating from a distance with a word. But here, I envision God pulling up his robes and kneeling down in the dust, getting dirty, and scooping that together and forming the man with his hands and then breathing into his nostrils the breath of life and man comes to life. 
Can you get your head around that, that God would be that intimately connected with the creation there? That is something special. That is you. He was intimately involved with this job. The creation of mankind was to be his masterpiece, the work of his hands and his heart. The passage goes on to describe how God gives Adam the responsibility of caretaker. The one designed, here was his job, to care for, nurture, coax, and guide each part of the creation toward its God-given purpose. That was what he was responsible for. And their God-given purpose was to glorify the Creator by doing exactly what they were designed to do. Now let's look at verse 18 in chapter 2. Verse 18 says this, Then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. That was kind. And right after that, God goes ahead and makes Eve, right? Wrong. He does something else first. The next verse says, Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. Whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. Well, that's kind of cool. God involved Adam in the creation, in the naming of all of these creatures. The man gave names to all the livestock and to the birds of the heavens and to every beast of the field. And then it says this, But for Adam was not found a helper fit for him. Why did God do that? Was God looking because he couldn't find something? Was he looking? Let's, let's take a look through and see what Adam likes best. And we'll sort of change things and modify and adapt. Not at all. In fact, I think God had a purpose, a very specific purpose in that. As he brought each one of those animals and said, Here, Adam, we have a male and a female woodpecker. Okay, I like woodpecker. That'll go. And here we have a male and a female armadillo. Okay, armadillo. He's drilling home the point that he's got a partner for each of these animals. But as each one of them goes by, there's not a partner for Adam. Adam, I want you to be really, really clear. You will not find your partner in the animal world. All right? Dogs are great. I have a dog. Dumb as a bag of hammers, but super cute. All right? Yes, he is. But, and they talk about dog is man's best friend and all that kind of stuff. Yeah-ish, and I kind of get that, right? Um, but that was not God's intent for that relationship to be the ultimate one. What does God do? God says, you won't find it there because I've got a plan to create a partner specifically designed for you. The passage goes on to describe how God takes a rib from Adam and wonderfully crafts a complement to him, a partner to join with him in the task of being caretakers of God's creation. Someone once said that she was not taken from his head to be above him, nor from his feet to be walked upon, but from his side to be equal, under his arm to be protected, and close to his heart to be loved. I don't know whether that's necessarily scriptural, but man, it sure works in God's plan. God expects Adam to similarly nurture and guide and encourage and care for his wife, to seek to help her achieve the purposes God has for her, just as he is to do with the rest of creation. I think Jared talked about that very clearly in his description of biblical manhood a while back. And she 
She is to be his equal partner in the work that God has given them. Together, they will accomplish this task side by side. Does your heart yearn like mine for that kind of loving intimacy that doesn't seek to use another for its own desires, but seeks for the other's best interests? If, if that was how our world worked, what a different world this would be, wouldn't it? Wouldn't it? So how did we get to where we are today? If God created sex to be something beautiful and valued and treasured and pure, what happened to bring us to what we, what we see around us? The Bible says that our problems with sex will never be solved horizontally in every sense of that word. Our sex madness is not first a problem of situation or location or relationship or even frequency. Our sex problems are not first biology or physiology problems. Modern media is not the problem. The fact that we are sexual beings is not the problem. The Bible says that our sex problems are deeply spiritual. They are a matter of the heart, and they can only be solved vertically. Jesus himself taught us that sex is distorted by sin. Now, perhaps you're thinking, uh, I don't recall any passage where Jesus talked about sex. And you would be right. He doesn't talk about sex specifically. He talks about us, about our innate natures. And he does so in Matthew 15. So I'm just going to pop back there. Matthew chapter 15. And it says this. We're going to start in verse 10. He calls the people to him. This is Jesus, sorry, speaking again. He calls the people to him. And, uh, and he says this in verse 10. He says, he called the people to him and said to them, hear and understand. It is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Now there's some more there. Uh, and he explains a little bit later in verse 17 to his disciples. He says, do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes into the stomach and is expelled? But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. That's what defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, lying, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Now, I want you to understand that Jesus is not talking about physical health or sanitation. The Pharisees, the religious elite, had this mindset that sin was something that was out there. It was something to be avoided by doing the right things, along the lines of avoiding an infection or bacteria or germs, something like that. They talked about ritual washings, right? And those, those had their place, perhaps, in various things, but the Pharisees would set so many more rules, they took essentially the Ten Commandments and turned them into 631 different regulations about how to be religiously clean. And Jesus said, you've missed the point. You can be completely religiously clean and your heart is still foul. Jesus was contradicting their mindset. His point was that sin is not out there and something to be avoided. Rather, sin is in here, within us. It is something to be confessed. We are not sinners as a result of the fact that we sin. We sin as a result of the fact that we are by nature sinners. 
As a consequence, everything we do, everything we are is tainted by sin. And ultimately, sin is rebellion against God. Sin causes us to question God's goodness, dethrone Him in our lives, and then set ourselves up as the final authority. That's, that's sin in general. When this happens, the focus changes. Everything becomes about us, our needs, our desires, our pleasure, our satisfaction. And not only is that ultimately selfish, but it actually goes completely against the grain of the whole of creation. We sometimes talk about the spiritual and the secular. The Bible doesn't ever acknowledge that division. It teaches that everything is spiritual. In fact, everything is a form of worship. The way I do my job as a teacher displays what I believe about God. If I am truly committed to following him, then he becomes my ultimate authority in all the decisions I make. I work for him, not necessarily for my principal, who was actually planning to be here this morning, uh, nor for my school board. I'm actually blessed with a wonderfully supportive principal, one who cares for her staff and seeks their best. But it hasn't always been like that. Uh, I've had other principals who haven't been that way. But regardless of whether they are supportive or not, regardless of whether your boss is supportive or not, regardless of whether your supervisor is supportive or not, you and I should be striving to do our very best because it's for God's glory that we do what we do. When we see it in that perspective, it makes all the difference. It should be true in every area of my life. So work is not secular, it's worship. Being a husband is not secular, it's worship. Being a father is not secular, it's worship. All of life is spiritual, all of it is worship, and that includes my sex life. Again, Paul Tripp says, sex is deeply religious. In sex, you are either self-consciously submitting to God or setting yourself up as God. Sex always connects you to the God who created your body, who gave you the eyes to see and the heart to desire and tells you how you are to steward this aspect of your personhood. In sex, you are either worshiping God by willingly submitting to his wise and good rules, or you're writing your own rules. And in so doing, you are telling yourself that you are smarter than God. And although sin is sin, the Bible deals with sexual sin far more strongly and harshly than other types of sin. 1 Corinthians 6 verse 18 says, Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Why is God so serious about this? For one, because he loves us that deeply. But he's also very protective of his teaching images. And sex is a picture of something far greater. God has chosen to use the marriage relationship including the intimate act of sex, to be a picture of Jesus' deep, passionate, intimate, self-sacrificing love for his church, his bride, as she's referred to in the New Testament. Any deviance from that pattern is a distortion of the picture. To say that it's okay to break your marriage vows to your spouse and have sex with another is in effect to say that it is okay for Christ to be unfaithful to his promises to the church because that's the picture. Or that the church could be unfaithful to him. Paul wraps up that whole passage by saying, you're not your own. You were bought with a price. 
So glorify God in your body. In Romans, he says, you know, he talks about being a living sacrifice. Let your body be a living sacrifice, pleasing and acceptable to God. It's your reasonable form of worship. Okay, so where does that leave us? Maybe you're here this morning and you've been the master of your own sex life and it's brought you emptiness. It didn't provide the lasting fulfillment like you thought it would. You had to either keep searching for a new sexual experience. And finally, something that will satisfy. Maybe you're someone who in essence worshiped sex and now you feel broken and used. Maybe you're a follower of Christ, but you've made some serious mistakes with your sexuality. Or you find yourself drawn to that which you know is wrong. And you find yourself playing with, it, with those boundaries. And you want your life to be different. You desire to honor God with your sexuality just as much as with the rest of your life. It's even possible that you're married and something's missing because you're looking for sex to be something it was never intended to be. We need to understand that sex is not the pinnacle. Our relationship with a spouse and the intimacy that sex brings is only a picture of the ultimate relationship, and that is us with Christ. Only Christ can satisfy that deep emotional need that we have, that intimate need that we have. Even sex can't do that. I have good news for you this morning. The Bible tells us that sex, sex is redeemed by the gospel. You see, even though the Bible treats sexual sin more seriously than other sin, the Bible is also clear that the forgiveness that Jesus offers you and me through his sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to cover any sin. <laughs> there is no sin for which Jesus says, oh, that, oh, that's too much even for me. That's not the case. The Bible is clear that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. We have all missed the mark when it comes to God's perfect standard, and the Bible goes on to say that the wages of sin is death. But Jesus willingly took our place, took the shame and the guilt that was ours, took the punishment that we deserved. When God treated Jesus as if he had committed all of those wrongs, and it cost him his very life to do so, that was the extent of his love for you and for me. When God raised Jesus from the dead, that was the proof that God was satisfied with the price that had been paid for sin. So God's already declared the sufficiency of the sacrifice on your behalf. And God is just. He cannot exact payment twice for the same sin. Our legal system, I hesitate to call it a justice system because it isn't always that, but our legal system at the very least is based on scriptural principles. You cannot be tried twice for the same crime. And that's because God will not hold someone accountable twice for the same sin, the same crime. He didn't differentiate between which sins were covered by the blood of Jesus. Our sin, the whole question, was paid for at Calvary. Remember that John 3.16 says that whosoever believes will not perish. It doesn't matter what you've done or how low you believe that you've sunk. Jesus' blood is sufficient to pay for it all. His grace can reach even you. No matter what you've done, no matter who you've been, he's calling you today. Don't turn him away. His death and his resurrection was not merely accomplished to redeem our sexuality, however. 
It was done to redeem us in our totality, to restore us to a right relationship with God. When God is in his rightful place in our lives, everything else comes into proper focus. If you're not a follower of Jesus Christ, he's inviting you today to make him your Savior and Lord. He wants to be the first love of your heart and teach you what true love and intimacy are all about. He wants to satisfy the longings of your heart, the emptiness inside you that you've been trying to fill with other things. He has your best, your joy, your satisfaction in view, but it can only happen when you put him in charge and follow his lead. Don't wait. Do it today. And for those of you that are followers, decide again today to make him Lord in your life, every area of your life, including your sexuality. Maybe in this area of your life, you've suffered hurt or shame or regret. He knows and he loves you just the same. He wants to restore you, restore to you the joy of your salvation. As David wrote in Psalm 51, his grace is enough to deal with all that you have to bring to him. If you're feeling trapped in sexual sin, you start to destroy sin's power by bringing your sin into the light. Satan will convince you to keep it hidden because that's how he keeps you enslaved. Satan will, sorry, I know, uh, I've been there. If you are ready to enjoy the freedom from the tyranny of sexual sin, confess it to God, and then come and talk to Jared or Chris or myself. You won't find judgment from us. We want you to enjoy the freedom that you are always meant to have in Christ. We will pray for you. We will walk with you. And we will give you practical help to find that freedom. And wrap up with one last quote from Paul Tripp. The victory of Jesus assures your victory. There's such beautiful promise in this. In farming terms, he is the first fruits. The appearance of the first apple on the tree is the guarantee of more apples to come. The empty cross and the tomb of Jesus are your guarantee that your sexual temptation, sin, and addiction will someday be defeated. Yes, we do live in a world that has gone sex insane. And yes, that insanity still lives in some way in all our hearts, but we needn't panic. We needn't succumb. We needn't think that our battles are leading nowhere. We must not give way to assessments of poverty, and by that he meant spiritually being poor, aloneness or impossibility, because the insanity has been invaded by the Messiah, Jesus. He faced every insane thing we face, and he defeated it all on our behalf. He did all this so that you and I would have the grace we need to face the sexual struggles we will continue to face until eternity is our home and the insanity has been quieted forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word has something to say about every aspect of our life. That everything that we struggle with, everything that, that we hurt in, or are disappointed by, that we can bring it to you and find wisdom and peace and redemption. We find that in you. Father, we thank you that we, we are not bound by this, that you have designed this plan whereby a Savior would come and rescue us. We may have found ourselves enslaved by various types of sin, 
We certainly were under the condemnation of sin, but because Jesus took our place, we can not only be freed from the penalty of sin, we can someday look forward to being absolutely free from the presence of sin. But we're so glad that today, today we can be free from the power of sin over us as well because of what Jesus Christ has done. And you have taught us in your word how we can access that power. It's not our power. Our power is not enough. One of the first steps that we have to come to in this whole issue is to admit the fact that not only are we often powerless in the face of this, often our hearts don't even want to be freed. Our hearts often desire those things that we know are wrong. And so we just come to you. We come to you for the transforming grace and power and love that will change us, change our hearts, change us into a more clear image of Jesus Christ, the one who loved us enough to die for us. Father, just pray for each person that's here today. They are not followers. Father, this morning they would choose to follow you as they see your heart in the whole of creation, the creation story, and, and, and even in the redemption story, in the gift of Jesus Christ as Savior. And for those of us who are followers, Father, that you would show us that we can live in the joy of what you have provided for us. We will give you all the thanks and praise. In Jesus' name.